Hello, and welcome to the Alternate Timeline. It is one last bonus podcast for the year, and we are going to do two episodes in one since I had to push the Sex Robots episode back by a week. Uh, So we're just going to combine Sex Robots and Animal Robots into one. So we're going to do the usual stuff, stuff we cut or couldn't include in the episode. Um, Then we're going to do like a little bit of wrap-up, housekeeping, what's next for Flash Forward, what's next for this bonus podcast, a couple of other odds and ends, and then we're done for the year and for Flash Forward 1.0. If you are a person who does not want to hear about sex robots at all, you can skip ahead on this bonus podcast to technically like 2458, so let's call it 25 minutes, which is where we will begin talking about animal robots. Um, For this first section, much like the actual episode, um, we're going to have a little bit more adult content, a little bit more explicit language. So if, again, you don't want that, go to minute 25. All right, let's do it. Um, Okay, so as usual for this mini season of robots, um, all the episodes have been really long in the beginning or in the first cut. So the sex uh, episodes first cut was very long. So I want to start with um, a couple of things about people's hangups around sex robots. Um, Tina actually had a lot to say about this and about why people might be weirded out by sex robots that we just didn't have time to include. So here is Tina. I think that people freak out about sex robots um, because because people are because people are scared of masturbation and are just uncomfortable with masturbation and don't know how to talk about it and whether they consciously think of sex with a sex robot as masturbation or not, I think that that discomfort is coming up for them. Even thinking about the idea of a consumer, a client, a uh, owner of a sex robot, a patron (laughs) of a sex robot service, like sticking their dick in a hole in the hardware like also kind of brings up another fear that I, I, I that I feel is relevant, which is kind of like the fear of bottoming. Like, and by bottoming, I mean, um, the let's say we're talking about two humans having sex. The bottom is the uh, bottoming is a term that emerges from queer culture that describes the person being penetrated, right? So they could be getting penetrated in their vagina. They could be getting penetrated in their mouth. They could be getting penetrated in their anus, in their rectum, um, or uh, any, any hole that they call uh, that they have like any other name for. Um, And, you know, I think that people are, really uncomfortable with and afraid of the the idea of the the agency of the person who wants to be penetrated or who enjoys being penetrated. And I think that has to do with a lot of things. I think it has to do with misogyny because we associate the person being penetrated with the feminized person, whatever that person's gender or um or anatomy looks like. Um I, I it definitely has to do with homophobia. 
Uh, and it it definitely and and like the idea of like how do like how do two men do it right and uh, just like the idea of anal sex as like you know scary taboo forbidden illegal also um, in 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 many places and and in many times throughout history um, of, of course um, in a world where we are still living with HIV the idea of uh, of bottoming as something that uh, like of bottoming being like something that could fucking kill you um, is, is definitely like, I think uh, affecting people's fear, whether they like recognize it or not. And um, so I, I definitely think that robot phobia is, or I should say, I definitely think that sex robot phobia is bottom phobia Another interesting thing that came up was around how these robots might be used. So a lot of press and even scholarship about the robots argues that they might be used to replace sex workers. We talked about that on the episode. Um, But along with that being unlikely for all of the reasons that we discussed, both technical and sort of, you know, logistical as well as like what sex workers can do, um, Blunt actually said that the clientele and the desires would also probably be really different. And I, th- I think someone who wanted, like, a relationship with a sex robot would be very different than someone who's reaching out to a sex worker for, like, it's, it feels like a very different client pool to me. Mm. Can you say more about that? I think that people reach out to sex workers to be seen and have their, like, desires acknowledged and to, like, establish intimate relationships with people and have their needs met that they're not able or don't want to get met elsewhere and I think that someone who would be like interacting or I guess like reaching out to us or buying a sex robot probably isn't as interested in that same level of connection um and it there's something very like just from like my like uh expertise in (laughs) kink it's there's something kind of objectifying about the sex robot which i feel like people would be what people are like really getting off on another thing that blunt and i talked about is this sort of oft repeated idea that people mostly men in tech slash silicon valley are mostly inventing things that are basically moms i don't know if i have a fully formed thought on this but have you read this article uh going to work in mommy's basement no i'm gonna i I don't know if i have like anything coherent to say about it but i was just thinking about it it's largely about how so much of tech is developed in mommy's like literally in mommy's basement and so much of tech is kind of extending this like unpaid like so much of gig economy work and tech developments around gig economy work is um, extending mom labor and, like, the momification of, like, other people doing this labor labor in largely, like, underpaid and exploitative conditions. And I guess I was sort of thinking of it in relationship to the development of sex robots that it, it – and one of the quotes is that the, te- te- the technology that comes out of mommy's basement will never liberate mommy from the basement. It's about control and the maintenance – of power. And I think that it's a really interesting quote to think about when we think about how technology is intersecting with 
feminized forms of labor and seeking to it, it's never seeking it will never actually like replace that labor it extends it onto other individuals who are doing it who are then also put into a space of like economic precarity where that labor is not properly compensated and I just thought it was a really interesting um I think it's like very interesting to think about how we create technologies to re- to quote unquote like replace feminized labor and how it's never actually a replacement of that labor but extending it into a different space. There's a great book. I I now I know this idea of like men are just inventing like ways. To, men are inventing to mommies. Not take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, there's a great book about this. If you haven't read it, it's old now, but, um, it holds up. It's called more work for mother. Mm. Um, and it's about basically like the invention of a lot of like laundry machines, and like dishwashers and all of this stuff. And the ways in which they were advertised to women as being like, this is going to free you up. And like, you're going to have less time, but like, it does not do that at all. It just like shifts other kinds of labor onto women. And it's, the book was written in like the eighties. And so it's like very gendered around like women, like whatever, but it is really good. And I reference it all the time on the show because it's like still to this day, one of those books that like changed how I think about technology. And it totally connects to this idea of like, you just keep inventing things, claiming it's going to be like good for women and like liberate, you know, people who are domestic and like, it literally never does that. (laughs) It's never done that. Even outside of like gender terms, like we like, reach to these new technologies like they will free up our time when really all that we've done has become more tethered to these machines and given ourselves more work and I guess I guess one thing that I like was thinking about in the beginning of the conversation is that sex workers are innovators of so so many technologies and that innovation is erased by history and we're innovators of new technologies out of necessity because when we when we go to new places and create new ideas, those ideas are criminalized and policed and we need to adapt and move and change and shift. And this has led so much technological innovation that is just completely, completely erased. And hearing you talk about um, more work for mother really made me think of like a wife who wants to like outsource her sex life to a sex robot and like she would be the one cleaning that fucking silicone and like reading this like 300 page pdf file of like how to properly get her like husband's semen out of this silicone and it would just create more work for her like i can think of like a myriad different ways that like a wife getting her husband a sex robot so she didn't have to fuck her husband would just create so much more work for her because like he's not going to be the one cleaning that sex robot's canals (laughs) On the more technical front, there were a couple of things that we didn't get into. Uh, For example, I bet you will never guess where people get the starter for growing human skin. Turns out that uh, in like kind of reconstructive surgery from like, you know, burn victims or like, like grafting scenarios, that's where most of the like R&D on synthetic skin is happening, which makes actually like a ton of sense. Um, So... In a lot of cases with things like grafting, you're going to be, like, get taking, like, skin cells from some other part of the body, but, like, and, like, kind of using those. Um, but there is some interesting work just kind of generating skin, from like, collagen and stuff from pre-existing skin cells. Um, from And, like, in the human context, uh, the primary material used seems to be foreskin. 
So yes, you did indeed hear that correctly. Uh, She said foreskin. So I did a bunch of reading about this. And in general, it seems like this foreskin comes from the neonatal units in hospitals. And it's kind of used like a starter for growing skin, sort of like a sourdough starter, but made of baby foreskin. So that's that's at least kind of the like human based one. If you're if you're weirded out by like a human source um, in terms of just like research on sort of like collagen generation and stuff like um, there's also stuff like in like kind of lab settings. You'll see a lot of stuff using like bovine uh, collagen uh, rat tails. have a lot of collagen in them. You can generate so your skin could be made out of out of rats. Um <laughs> someone's someone's into that somewhere uh yeah i don't want to i don't want to shame um but yeah so there's it's like you're gonna see so you're gonna see either like this very niche uh material one material from human bodies um or things that you might typically associate with sort of like lab biology like rats or like kind of like waste byproducts from like agricultural slaughter Ingrid and I also talked a lot about Westworld, um, which was actually the reason that she wrote that piece about humanoid robots and supply chains in the first place. I started to wonder about the supply chains for humanoid robots um, because I got invited to be on a panel about, like, art of AI and cyborg things. Like, this was a very loosely defined panel. It was on, like, uh, November 22nd, 2019. Whatever, like, the Blade Runner anniversary is a couple years ago. Um, you probably should double-check the date. I think it was... It doesn't matter. But, like, basically, uh, my friend Liam Young, who's uh, at SciArc, uh, was like, hey, I'm doing this event, and it's going to be, like, you and these uh, concept artists who work on like sci-fi movies and uh, this guy who did production work on Westworld. And I was like, I've never seen Westworld. I like have, I do not want to be a jerk and like show up to this panel and be like, I, I've never even watched your show. Nah, you know? Um, so I, so I like just kind of binged like the first season. And I remember, like I just kind of started all of my questions were just about like the manufacturing side, which is, I think, arguably like the best thing that show does, like the the re- the presentation of just like, oh yeah, of course it would be this like extraordinarily bespoke three D printing thing, but they never explain what anything's made out of. It's just kind of like here's some white, yeah, some like weird white goo. It's uh, it just can be any kind of life. Deal with it, right? Um, I ended up actually there was like some schedule snafu in the Westworld guy and I didn't even get to talk, which I was so annoyed because this was like my only questions. My only questions are about how do you make that much skin? And and I never got an answer. It was just a mystery. Westworld actually came up a lot in conversation for this episode with like everybody I talked to. Um, And one thing that I didn't include in the final cut is about waste in these humanoid robots like do the robots in Westworld poop? I feel like I read somewhere canonically they do shit, but they never, like, they don't really get into it in the show. But, like, the creators may have said somewhere, like, no, no, they shit. Um, but what they shit is actually, that's a valid question because, like, they don't need to eat, right? Like, they do eat, but it's unclear if they actually need to eat. Um, and 
like because they're pretty much, you know, largely like bioengineered beings, it's like how they process waste is something that somebody could have made decisions about. So it's like they could they could poop cubes for all we fucking know. And this is sort of funny, like, okay, haha, we're talking about poop. But it is really a question when it comes to biological robots, right? Like, if we are building something that mimics the biology of a living thing, that does involve waste products. And, like, you kind of have to deal with that. Tina had her own thoughts about Westworld. The way that the show characterized people wanting to go to a theme park where they could fuck robots within the context of like these sort of role play adventure stories that that people that, that the 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 show the show's point of view is clearly like humans have gone too far um uh just because they they were so busy thinking about whether they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should, to quote another sci-fi story. Um, uh, written by Michael Crichton, who actually also wrote um, Westworld. But anyway. Um, for the record, if such technology were possible, I think a place that you could go and fuck machines that look and act like people sounds great. Sign me up. I mean, sponsor me. I don't know if I can afford it. Um, but, um, spawn con. Um, <laughs> I was so happy when I got my ticket to Westworld and I just had the time of my life. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Use promo code flash flash to get, hundred thousand dollars off your first trip to Westworld. <laughs> no free ads. Okay. Um, no speculative ads. <laughs> um, I think that it's very, two more things I want to say about Westworld that come to mind. I think that it's very telling that the very first episode of Westworld both like presents you with the idea of this theme park and what the human patrons do at the theme park, but definitely sets up an, an ongoing ethical question of whether, of whether you can rape a robot, whether it's ethically possible to rape a robot and like, within and like even what you were referring to that that piece that I wrote about it like I was able to get paid to write about that because the show was clearly set up to inspire the hot take industrial complex to explore such things so like thank you um but uh but as a BDSM and kink educator and also as a self-described pervert and kinky person um the idea of consensual non-consent fantasies being healthy is is very important to my work I, I teach classes on it I talk about it um and write about it in my work all the time and when I talk about consensual non-consent I'm I'm uh, essentially you know using a a kink culture word for uh, a a fantasy in which like one person in which 
everyone involved negotiates the terms and the container with which they can explore fantasies of force, coercion, exploitation, inappropriateness, uh, uh, and power exchange. And then the other thing that I'll say about Westworld is that later on in that first season, it has one of my favorite all-time cinematic or television depictions of robot sex. And that's because it is between a human woman and a robot with a male form, presumably a form of the penis um, or phallus. And uh, you see Tessa Thompson, like, it's all like very implied, but you see Tessa Thompson, like, open up a door to a room where she has clearly been riding a robot with a phallus and also has tied him up, which is like a, an amazing thing to think about in terms of fantasy that like you can make the robot do whatever you want, but you enjoy the aesthetics or the dynamics of the idea that you have tied that robot up, that you've used bondage. It's like actually a really great way to think about bondage and how it works on the human erotic imagination. So I have a lot of my own personal thoughts about Westworld uh, that I will not bore you with. But in terms of things that relate to this particular Flash Forward episode, I will say just one thing. Um, Westworld is a place where you can go and act out any fantasy you have, like any fantasy, right? And yet, in the show... Almost all, like 99.9% of the sex that we see between guests and hosts is straight. And that, to me, feels like the least believable thing about the show. Because if people can go to a place and do anything they've ever dreamed of, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they're going to experiment. And that a lot of the sex that you are going to see is not straight sex. Anyway, uh, okay, the other thing that we didn't get into in this episode is just a little bit more about Tina's new book, Safe Sex, which does involve killer sex robots. The idea of sex robots as the sex labor force of the future is a huge theme of my new book, Safe Sex Terms of Service. And in that book... You know, there's a totalitarian dystopian government that has this series of social programs. And in the new book, their newest social program is sort of collaborating with a men's rights movement, a clear proxy for incels and the manosphere to engineer, manufacture, and provide men with, like, government-issued sex robots. And inherent in this dramatization and kind of why I set this up this way, well, like, within this world that the artists and I have, have created, part of what I wanted to explore was this idea that if men just had something to stick their dicks in and get off, then they would stop going on murder sprees, that that rape culture would end, that uh, the world would be a, be a better place. I, uh, 
let's just say I wanted to critique that idea. Okay, so that is everything from the Sex Robots episode, and I will just say that I wanted to take on this topic again because I really do think that the coverage of sex robots is some of the worst tech coverage that I see. Um, Like, people really, like, lose all context and sense when they write about this stuff, and I feel like one of the jobs of Flash Forward is to give listeners sort of like smarter ways of thinking about stuff that they might see in the news to offer up questions or frameworks for processing those headlines. And since the tech news on this front is so often so bad, uh, it feels worth getting into it on the show and giving you just some like thoughts, context, maybe some questions to ask if you see this stuff. Um, So hopefully you learned something and maybe even changed your thinking about these devices just a little bit. Um, That's kind of the goal. Okay, now let's move on to animals, shall we? So like I said on the main episode, if you've been here for a while, it will not surprise you that we ended with animals. Um, I am genuinely very, very obsessed with animals and technology and the places that they intersect. I think that there's something really interesting about the ways we consider tech ethics and when we do and don't include other animals in that conversation. So on that note, I will start with the show Spy in the Wild. So Julia and I watched a bunch of episodes of this, and even though it is very clear that the show is selling a specific narrative and is definitely overselling just how convinced the wild animals are by the robot animals, I still found it very interesting and frankly emotionally affecting, um, but like not in a good way. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I I hesitate to say that I recommend the show because a lot of it is really hokey and melodramatic, but I do kind of recommend it because it definitely made me think about things a lot. Um, now, when it comes to the monkeys that we talked about, I just want to say a little bit more about the um, morning thing that we talked about on the show. Um, so on the television show, they make it sound like the monkeys are mourning this robot baby dying. And both primate experts that we talked to were like, eh, no, that's not really what I'm seeing. But Dr. Lydia Hopper did send me a long email about primate mourning, which is full of super interesting stuff. So just a quick warning that we are going to talk mostly about infant death in this next little section. And so if that topic, even in monkeys, is something that's hard for you, just skip ahead like three or four minutes. So Lydia pointed out that there was recently an entire issue of the journal Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which is like a very good uh, journal title, (laughs) very posh. Um, Anyway, dedicated to this topic of thanatology across species. And there is a researcher, Dr. Alicia Carter, who is leading an effort to compile all reports of primates' responses to death to try and determine the underlying mechanisms and drivers. So I'm going to link to all of this in the show notes for this episode, all the papers that Lydia sent and all the stuff that we found. So they'll all be in the show notes. Um, In primates, most reports have focused on mothers' responses to the death of their infants. So mothers have been reported to carry their deceased infants, sometimes for days, sometimes even weeks. Um, Primates also sometimes begin to eat the mummified corpse. Um, There are many anecdotal published reports of this in a variety of primate species, but the article that I'm going to link to um, in the show notes is a diary account of a young chimpanzee named Jokro dying and then his mother's response. So this paper is really detailed and includes photos. And so, again, I will say that if infant death is a difficult topic for you, definitely skip that paper. 
Now, not all primates do this, and a mother might do it for one infant, but not another infant. And so it's sort of confusing. Um, it's sort of unpredictable and um, interesting in a lot of ways. It's also like anecdotal for these reports. And so for scientists, this makes it really hard because it's hard to understand like what explains this behavior, what a primate's concept of death even is. Um, and so all of this is kind of still just based on case reports and anecdotes. But there are a couple of theories that have been proposed to explain why primates might carry their dead around. So some people say that the primates simply just like don't even realize that their babies are dead. Um, that feels like relatively unlikely to me. And when you observe them, um, and this is from the literature, it's pretty clear that the way that mothers carry and move the bodies of dead infants is different to how they handle them when they're alive. So that does suggest that like they recognize that the infant is dead. Um, others argue that they um, do obviously know that the infant is dead, but they're doing this for other reasons. There are all kinds of theories, um, hormones, social bonds, like there's a paper that goes through all the theories. Um, for reference, Lydia sent me a video of a young gorilla responding to his mother's corpse. I will link to it in the show notes. But again, only watch this if you are feeling ready to feel feelings because it was very hard for me to watch. And I find all of this really interesting for a variety of reasons, just because like it's interesting to know how the animal world responds to things. But also um, in one of the papers that we'll link to in the notes, the authors also point out that studying animals' responses to death can help us better understand sort of fundamental questions about the evolution of cognition and emotion. Um, if you are also interested in any of this, I will post, again, like links galore in the show notes. Another super interesting resource on this general topic is the Ologies episode on Corvid Thanatology, which is about the morning rituals of crows, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, that's that. Okay, uh, we are now done talking about infant death across species. Um, moving on to things that are kind of wackier and more fun. Um, another thing we wound up cutting was a sort of a little bit longer discussion of putting animals on trial. So we mentioned the beetles from 17, from 1478, but there are much more modern examples. Um, in fact, there is a whole book of cases of animals on trial called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals by E.P. Evans, originally published, I think, around 1906. And that book has a ton of examples Rats, dogs, locusts, all sorts of interesting stuff. And to this day, this still happens. So in 2017, for example, um, some donkeys in Uttar Pradesh in India were sentenced to jail time for eating some plants that they were not supposed to eat. Okay, moving on to robot fish. Um, one thing that Giovanni talked about that we decided to cut is this kind of commonly referenced idea that you bring in one predator to deal with an invasive species, and that predator then gets out of hand. So you bring in like a bigger predator to deal with the first imported predator and onward and onward and onward to absurdity. So there is a very famous uh, Simpson episode uh, that uh, I have a uh, memory of it that was basically teasing what actually is what actually happened in the U in, uh, in Australia in which uh, rabbits have been imported and then rabbits became a problem and then foxes have been imported but then foxes did not actually eat the rabbit, they ate other marsupials. So now the fox was a second problem. And now what do you do? Then you import the wolves and the wolf does not eat until you basically end up with dinosaurs. Like, so you never fix the problem. Now, this story is often repeated, but it might not be 100% true. So most sources that we could find said that the foxes were actually introduced to be hunted for sport 
and not to control the rabbit population. Now, the foxes were and are still a very big problem, um, but they might not have been actually part of this chain. And even in the case of the mosquito fish, it's a little more complicated than it might seem at first. So these mosquito fish were imported to eat mosquitoes to cut down on malaria. According to Giovanni, they didn't have any impact on malaria. But that's not 100% clear to me. So there are conflicting research papers on this. Some people say that they did have an impact. Some people say that they didn't. And it's hard for me to really tell who's right. And I bring this up not because I want to like undermine Giovanni, who I think is like a very smart researcher who's doing really cool work, uh, but more because I think it kind of speaks to a bigger theme of the episode. Um, the fact that ecosystems and the animals within them are really complicated. We want these neat cause and effect stories, right? This happens and this happens and this happens. Um, and it's a very nice little narrative. But that's often really hard to actually find because these are really complex creatures and systems that are changing all the time. So any very nice, neat story about an ecosystem is probably not quite true. Okay, and then the last thing we cut from the animals episode was about sentient animal robots. Because if you follow the standard sci-fi plot, you do at some point have to confront whether you think it's okay to keep a robot in a cage as well. I mean, there's no reason why some of this same thing wouldn't play out eventually with animal robots, right? Um, in fact, if you started out by making like a robot amoeba or a robot nematode, you might be able to program it with sort of all of the behavioral responses of that animal a long time before you could create a convincing robot human. And then, you know, once you've got like, I don't know, a robot, um, what if you have like a, a sort of a sentient robot animal, then what? Then now you can't have it in the zoo anymore. You're back to square one. Okay, that is all the stuff that we did not get to include in the sex and animals episodes. Um, I have a couple more housekeeping things to say. Um, the first is that this bonus podcast is going to be on a break for a little bit. I'm still trying to figure out like what exactly we're going to do here on the bonus podcast while we are in development for the next version of Flash Forward. Um, Julia and I have a big brainstorming session scheduled for next year, and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, so you might hear a variety of things like we might just come on and share stories we're interested in you know you might just hear a conversation with julia and i or one or the other of us talking about something we think is cool um we'll figure it out this is also a question that i'm gonna ask you all about in the special supporters survey that is going to go out in the first week of january so do be on the lookout for that um the second thing i want to say real quick is about ads and ad placement on the show so i mentioned a couple weeks ago maybe a couple months ago. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> what is time? Uh, this year has gone by both very fast and excruciatingly slowly. Um, anyway, so I mentioned a little while ago that after hearing some pushback about BetterHelp, um, and I did some research, that we wouldn't be taking any new contracts with them, but that we were going to fulfill the contracts that we currently had. Um, so that means that you you heard an ad for them in that final episode. Um there are also a couple of back catalog ads that are still active. So if you hear those, that's why. Um, just so you know. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking a little bit about right now um, is dynamic ad insertion. So Flash Forward uses dynamic ad insertion. Um, and that basically means that if you hear an ad that is not my voice, that's what you're hearing. Um, it's essentially sort of a way for me to make a little bit of money on the back catalog. So basically, wherever we don't have an ad sold, that is like a 
you know, host read ad is what they're called, where I read the ad. Um, I can put a little marker and companies can buy those spots. And so with that system, um, you know, I can make money on the back catalog and a fair amount of listens at this point on Flash Forward are on the back catalog. So that's a big way that Flash Forward makes sort of passive income um, for me to be able to like pay Julia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now with that system, I can exclude categories. So I can say like no sports gambling, no payday lenders. Um, I have a lot of categories excluded, including things like oil and gas, um, certain kinds of technology. Um, and so I can go through and sort of say I don't want, you know, like loan services or student loan stuff or whatever it is. The challenge is that I cannot exclude specific companies. And this has become a little bit annoying recently for two reasons. Number one, um, I would love to be able to just say like ExxonMobil, BP, like all these oil and gas companies you cannot advertise. Um, I have gone through and excluded as many different ad categories that I can imagine them being in, including things like, you know, green energy, which like in theory I am for, but because Exxon loves to advertise their green energy, it's just sort of one of the categories that I exclude. That said, I have heard from listeners that they keep hearing like Exxon and BP ads. And I finally reached out to Megaphone, which is the company that does um, handles my ad insertion. And I was like, hey, like, why are people hearing these ads? Like, I, I feel like I've I've gone through every possible category I could. You know, what's up? And I learned that some oil and gas companies are filing their ads under a category called other to try and well, I don't have any proof that it is specifically to try and avoid people like me who are trying to exclude them from the ad buys, but it feels a little bit shady, right? For like Exxon to be like, oh no, this is an ad for other as opposed to like any of the energy categories or whatever it is. So you've heard a couple of those. The other category that is hard is tech. Um, so not all tech companies are horrible and evil, but some of them are. And because I can't exclude specific companies, you may have recently heard, for example, an ad for Facebook Portal on the episodes. I've tried to exclude any tech company categories that might be used by Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But again, like I like I can't always know what categories they're using. So we don't have any ads, for example, for rideshare companies because Uber, um, you know, so it's sort of like a bit of a game of whack-a-mole here. Um, I am trying to figure out what the best course of action is. You know, I can continue doing what I'm doing, which is when I hear about an ad that sneaks through, figure out what category it came in under and ban that category. Um, it is kind of a bummer because there are certain companies that I would be totally fine with having advertise on the show that I'm having to eliminate because we can only do it by categories and not by companies. Um, there's an argument that I should just like turn off the dynamic ad spigot, right? Because I can't control the content as finely as I would like to. And maybe that is the correct answer. Um, that said, as I mentioned, it's a not insignificant amount of money coming in from those old ad spots, and it helps pay for the show, um, especially going into this next phase of Flash Forward 2.0. That is probably going to be harder to sell to advertisers in, you know, I don't know what form it's going to take, but it probably will be harder to sell than the sort of every other week standard format. Um, so yeah, I am thinking about those things right now, um, just, so you, just so you know. Um, okay. Last last few things. Um, first, thanks to everybody who came to the event last week. Uh, it was so fun seeing people 
whose names I recognize from emails or whatever it is sort of running around. I mentioned this in the newsletter. We may do another event, um, probably not till January because I'm going to take a little break, um, but we might do another event. So keep your ears uh, and eyes peeled for that in various newsletters and stuff like that. Um, I'm really excited for what's next or flash forward, and I don't know what that's going to be. And I'm really trying to not be prescriptive and not jump into like the most obvious sort of lowest hanging fruit ideas that we have. So um, I'm resisting kind of try like saying anything about what it's going to be. Um, so I'm excited and I hope that you're excited too. Um, and I just want to like really, really thank you all so much for listening to the show, for listening to these bonus podcasts. They are a non-insignificant amount of time to put together, as you might guess, given that I have to kind of pull tape and stuff like that um, and write them all and all that stuff. So I really appreciate that you're here, that you're listening um, to all of it. So thank you so much. I hope you're having a great um, holiday season if you're celebrating. And if you're not, I hope you're like cozy wherever you are and safe. Um, I know right now it's like a, a weird time uh, with the new variant uh, with Omicron and stuff like that. So yeah. Um, um, and then the last thing is a secret. And, um, I guess my secret is you might know this already from the newsletter and, or from like social media, but, um, I, uh, finally, after months and months and months of talking about it, probably years now of talking about it, um, shaved my head. And so now I don't have any hair and it's great. And I'm very happy about it. Uh, so yeah, I feel very, light and free and also a little cold. My head's a little cold, but it's really fun to like rub it with my hand. Anyway, um, so that's my adventure in hair, uh, right now. Okay. That is everything. Happy 2021. I hope you all again, stay safe. Um, I hope you're connected to people you love, uh, this season, whatever that might look like for you. And I will be back in your ears one way or another in 2022. Okay. Bye.